1: Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Jia Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's program, we'll talk about uh, global food prices fell sharply in July and Chinese internet company Baidu to operate fully driverless robot taxis in two Chinese cities. And now let's begin with our top story. The UN Food Agency reported that global food prices fell sharply in July, but they are still up from last year. Food prices dropped 8.6% in July from the previous month. That was led by falls in the prices of vegetable oil and wheat but food prices are still 13% higher than last year. There is some hope in the form of green exports out of Ukraine under a UN broker deal. So why did global food prices fall? And how will it affect global consumers and economies? For more on this, join us on the line now are Dr. Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Anna Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So then first of all, we are seeing the food prices dropped by more than eight percent in July from the previous month. So what do you think are some of the main reasons?
2: Uh, one obvious reason is a stronger U.S. dollar. And then besides that, we also have seen this UN-backed export agreement between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, and this year is actually a uh, a better year for crop harvest for major food exporting countries. And it seems that there has been an over-exaggeration on the food production capacity and a overly concern uh, about how much uh, that those countries can produce. Uh, There is a global economic slowdown, so actually the demand is lower and that has contributed to the slowdown in the food prices.
1: So Aina, what do you think are the main reasons for the uh, food prices For and will it continue?
0: Right now, uh, one of the biggest uh, factors is, uh, for instance, uh, China's corn imports first half of the year sank 11% from a year ago. Wheat imports during the same period 7, 7.8%, and soybeans down 5.4%. So what you see here is the effects of uh, uh, the COVID, the pandemic, the shutdowns, uh, restaurants, et cetera, weren't doing it. You're also seeing a, a sharp uh, uh, movement away from uh, grain-intensive things like beef uh, towards things like chicken. Uh, which more a little more efficient, uh, and as a result, that has tamed things. But if you start looking around the world, um, you know, there's been bad harvests in, in India, uh, very slow on the rice planting because of lack of uh, water. Uh, there's been crop damage due to uh, heat. Australia is doing well. Russia is doing well. Uh, that's not going to be uh, music to the ears of the United States because uh, Russia's going to have a lot of grain to sell, and they're going to have a mm-hmm. lot of willing buyers.
1: Mm. And, Ina, so there is some hope in the form of the green export out of Ukraine under uh, a UN brokered deal. So, how much will this uh, relieve the food crisis globally?
0: So it's not going to make a big dent. Uh, a, a few uh, containers of, uh, not containers, but container ships full of grain is not going to solve the global food crisis. Remember, there's going to be an added cost to this. And one of the factors that is involved here is not only shortages, but uh, because of that, uh, prices going up. Uh, you add on additional shipping uh, and the insurance costs, because people are uh, these companies are very, very uh, concerned about the geopolitical risk they're putting their um, ships in, uh, it's going to increase. And you're really going to see more inflation as the year goes through, especially as uh, China demand snaps back. Uh, that could have a big impact.
1: Mm-hmm. So Dan, do you agree with Aina? And some analysts have doubt over whether the prices will continue to fall. So what's your take?
2: Uh, the food futures market sentiment has certainly improved, uh, and the global food prices is affected largely now by the futures market expectations. And it looks like that the market forecasts that the Ukraine food export will recover to about 90% of the pre-conflict level uh, in about three four months. And that has marginally relaxed uh, the supply side of the bottleneck. And I do think uh, overall, just the relaxation on the Ukraine and the Russian side wouldn't solve the global food crisis, but it does improve the sentiment greatly.
1: Mm-hmm. And the World Bank data shows that uh, as of uh, early June, thirty-four countries had uh, recently imposed uh, the export restrictions on food and uh, fertilizers. And the bank warned that the moves may drive up the prices and worsen the situation. So then, what do you think? Uh, you know, the other countries across the world should do to jointly tackle the food crisis.
2: Uh, the food crisis is an old problem uh, for africa and sometimes for smaller asian countries and the food shortage uh, everybody understands can lead to famine in fragile states uh, and for many of the middle eastern and north african countries they do rely on the food export from russia and ukraine uh, turkey lebanon uh, albania Uh, And also Congo do have a serious um, food security problem but besides that there's also the climate change problem we have seen this heat wave uh, keep coming back Uh, even the wheat production in France has reduced and that has jeopardized uh, the investment further in this sector and to reduce the likelihood of having a global food crisis, first of all, of course, we have to reduce the interruption in transportation and the agricultural supply chain. And that involves a lot of coordination between developing nations and developing nations. But more importantly, in the long term, there has to be a better strategy to cope with the climate change.
1: Mm. And Aina, so Dan mentioned the supply chain issue. Uh, actually, a recent report I read showed that uh, the transportation is a problem. So it seems that uh, it is not lack of food that is the problem, but maybe we're not doing a good job of getting the food from point A to point B in an efficient way. So is it primarily a crop harvest or size issue or a distribution issue?
0: Well, it's both, and then also you have to add in fertilizers. I mean, you're seeing uh, diminished yields just because of the availability of fertilizer wasn't there. If you start looking at Sri Lanka, one of the problems that they had is that they uh, stopped trying to they wanted to stop importing fertilizer because it was a cash issue, but that led to dramatic decreases in the efficiency of the of the crop yields. So, yeah, it's there. But in terms of logistics, absolutely. Uh, the problem with what's going on in Europe is uh, transportation used to be by trains, etc. Now it has to basically go through uh, ports uh, that's adding more pressure onto the already uh, uh, diminished capacity, or I should say diminished capacity, to the pressure on the shipping industry, which, you know, it takes years to build ship. Uh, Mm -hmm. Right now, you can see it uh, very clearly in the number and prices of used ships. Generally, after 10 years, you retire a ship. Now you're seeing ships that are uh, continuing operation, even in their 15, 16 years, when they're not considered as efficient, et cetera. it it really is a problem. It's not going to obey quickly. Uh, The shipyards are at capacity right now, but delivery is still slow.
1: Mm -hmm. And then earlier you mentioned the famine, but uh, the report I read also shows that uh, up to 35% of food in America goes to waste. And uh, it's not just Americans. A global report shows that uh, almost one third of the global food supply goes to waste. So what do you make of that?
2: Um, the waste of food is a uh, quite widespread phenomenon because some of the waste is uh, unavoidable, uh, like the waste during transportation and uh, because of poor infrastructure. But for developing nations and developed nations, there are a fundamental different approach to this problem. For developing nations, it's mostly because of poor storage facilities that they would lose a huge amount of food. There's very little waste actually on the table. Uh, There's also the poor packaging problem that could have the food leak along the way of the transportation. And the usual solution is to include, uh, is to increase local investment in infrastructure, uh, in raising the consumer awareness, and also to improve the cold chain for transporting fragile food. And for developed nations, they usually have a different attitudes towards their food. People rarely eat leftovers, so they throw away a lot in restaurants and at home. Uh, there's a quality standard as well so with uh, 10 different uh, apples for example if some of them are of a weird shape or different size uh, they can be thrown away because it's a very standardized process and some of the development nations in europe uh, would try to educate consumers to uh, be more aware about food waste problem and uh, they want to improve the purchase and consumption planning uh, among consumers. Um, but such a uh, movement is relatively lagging in um, the U.S. and Britain.
1: And after the food prices, I would also like to talk about the energy issue. Actually, recently, the uh, Goldman Sachs said the case for higher oil prices was still strong despite a recent retreat led by the factors like the global recession cons- so I know what are your thoughts on this
0: well I I don't necessarily agree with them I don't think the issue is oil I think it is gas Uh, oil is fungible you can ship it by pipeline but it doesn't need to be compressed and it doesn't need to be shipped on special ships other than you know obviously containers Um, there has been some change in supply lines etc but that can be addressed you're still going to see some uh, additional costs in terms of transportation but gas is another thing entirely, and you know you, the question is total energy. If you don't have the gas, you have to figure out how you're going to uh, fill that gap. Uh, Europe is talking about you know keeping their nuclear plants in line, going towards more coal, uh, trying to substitute oil. But a gas fa- uh, a gas facility runs on gas, uh, natural gas, and you can't put oil into it. It's it's not that way. So you you're losing that capacity there. So I'm less concerned about oil than I am about gas. Mm
1: -hmm. So Dan, what are you concerned about? Uh,
2: What I'm concerned is uh, the conflict in uh, Ukraine, Um, because as long as this conflict continues, uh, the world cannot completely resolve the energy shortage problem. Of course, I agree with Ina that natural gas is the biggest problem. Um, But oil price is very volatile um, this year. And as long as the conflict continues, that means the oil price per barrel will probably be around $100. And that's quite high, significantly higher than two years ago. And given that China and the U.S. still has sizable growth, although they have been downgraded uh, in terms of the GDP growth target, but the world is still in this post-COVID recovery mode this year. Um, the growth is quite substantial um, by any standard. And that means the demand for both gas and oil is high. And mm. that would underpin the price of oil.
1: Mm. And then so the EU ban on Russian coal imports just uh, come into force. So is that going to be a problem for Europe or will they going to manage it?
2: Uh, well, I think the amount of the coal Uh, imported from Russia is not that important for EU. Um, They, of course, have restarted some of the old coal mines or temporarily continued some of the traditional coal-powered plants. Um, But overall, I just don't think this is a significant problem for Europe yet. Um, They have, in fact, have beat up the transition from the traditional energy to new energy, precisely because of their overly reliant on those traditional energy and they have, reli- uh, they have realized how vulnerable the system is. And This year will be a difficult year for Europe for sure, um, but uh, it has also uh, guaranteed more budget and more investment in
1: the coming years. And Aina, so will Europe have enough energy in this winter? No. Why?
0: because they can't make up their gas shortfall. It doesn't matter uh, how many uh, nuclear facilities, uh, everything that they have will not make up for the shortage, And as I said. Once you have uh, the capacity, which is depending on gas-driven turbines, to provide energy, once they don't work and you don't have a means to fill that, even with all the coal plants, uh, they're talking about uh, uh, 16 uh, plants that were going to be mothballed, they're not going to do that, Uh, they're going to restart some old ones, it's still not enough to get them over this hump, so you're going to see price increases there that are going to offset the decreased global demand because of the recession.
1: So, Aina, some are already talking about the energy transition, but it seems the fuel crisis is also stumping the transition to green and clean energy. Many countries are restarting the coal plants and using other, you know, fossil fuels. So, how do you think about the energy transition trend? Will it be slowed down?
0: Well, there's, there's two parts of it. There's the practical. Right now, you have a short-term gap. Uh, countries have to do, the, to do what is necessary to power their economies. Without power, they literally cannot run their factories without factories or heat their homes. Without that, your economy stops, and people start freezing to death. So this isn't something where they want to do it. They have to do it. Uh, but with global warming becoming an increasingly... Visible factor as you have these massive heat waves and storms, etc., cetera, uh, crop reductions in certain areas. There is a growing consensus among the world, especially among the people, that this is a real issue. Uh, so as a result, after this uh, and after the recession, you're going to start to see probably a, a much higher level.
1: Mm. So then how do you look at the energy transition trend? Uh, the energy transition in the
2: long term is unavoidable um, because the world uh, needs a new industrial structure that is less polluting, and they need to. We need to reverse the climate change trend. Uh, it has been quite dangerous to observe so many extreme uh, weather conditions in different parts of the world. Um, But now there is a strong trade-off, of course, between energy security and energy transition. Uh, We have seen even the uh, pioneer countries in Europe have slowed down their energy transition pace. And for large economies, especially the exporting economies like China and Germany, their exports will eventually suffer uh, if the energy transition doesn't keep up with its original schedule. Um, but the good news in this whole um, in this whole mess is that uh, every country now is more aware of what a climate change can do to their agriculture, to their industry and even to uh, the, uh, the services they're targeting uh, for those industry. So there is a strong policy support in terms of money uh, and also in terms of uh, different measures and regulation. And that is good news for the future of the world.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, we're speaking with Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And after a short break, we'll take a look at self-driving technology, stay with us
0: hello this is michael john greetings from los angeles of the golden state of california thank you today for making me part of your team i truly enjoy the debates we had and look forward to many more in the years to come
1: You are listening to Biz Today, I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Baidu has secured permits to offer a fully driverless robot taxi service in two Chinese cities. Business insiders say it means the company is leading the race to launch the autonomous cars in the country. Baidu said when it launches in Wuhan and Chongqing, it will be the first time an autonomous vehicle company is able to offer a fully driverless ride-hailing services in China. So, Aina, Baidu will offer rides in Wuhan and Chongqing without a human operator. So how big of a milestone is this for the autonomous driving technology and the uh, commercialization of it?
0: Well, it's huge. You know, this is following what uh, what happened on August 1st in in terms of Shenzhen. Obviously, the government is very concerned about rolling this out in multiple cities. And, And this is very typical of what the Chinese government does. They do a lot of planning. They, they create cities where they're going to try out and see what the practical difficulties were, start improving on it, get to a model that they think is sustainable, and then push that out uh, across the nation. Uh, this has profound economic uh, you know, effects. Uh, you know, China's service economy is above 54%. Uh, transportation is a large part of that. If you start thinking about the number of taxi drivers, the number of DD drivers, the number of bus drivers, even trains perhaps even airplanes, um, you know, trucks uh, and, you know, where are those people going to go? How do you create a that uh, accommodates them? Now, overall, prices will drop because, uh, you know, deliveries and everything like that, once it's, uh, you know, basically uh, driverless, it's 24 seven. And it's a lot easier to do, uh, you know, a lot less costly. That gets reflected back to the consumer. Uh, it also increases potentially profits for um, uh, the manufacturers, so these, these are big changes and China is uh, at the very front edge of the spear in terms of doing this, and based on past experience, uh, they should be able to work this out within a few years.
1: Mm. And then so what's your quick response? Just imagine a fully driverless ride-hailing service. How will this change people's lives or the way of commute?
2: Uh, Well, this could certainly bring new technology demand and change the customer experience within the vehicle and some of the industries will experience revolutionary changes like logistics because we no longer need drivers for those long haul trucks and many of the workers can be released from those repetitive work and do more productive things uh, like uh, e-commerce even if they have lower skills. And there can also be new infrastructure demand, um, and that can bolster a lot of new growth uh, in countries like China. Mm.
1: And then so major automakers around the world, like Tesla, have already invested in the business of uh, the auto-driving technology. But at what stage are we now in terms of this?
2: Um, There are a few examples of small-scale commercial adoption. Um, but actually, uh, no company uh, from any country has reached the kind of large-scale commercialization. Um, this process is likely to be, to be quite slow um, and will happen region by region. And I don't think uh, the world is ready in its regulatory framework for a large scale of adopting this kind of technology. Uh, after all, safety is still the number one concern.
1: So, Aina, so should the government become more serious in regulating the auto driving technology?
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, regulation follows practicality. You know, they didn't used to have speed limits when they had the Model T. Uh, it only beca- they only had to have speed limits when it became clear that horses and buggies and people and bicycles were not going to mix very well unless you had some sort of regulation. So mm. that that is going to appear automatically. But I mean. It, there's a fundamental issue here, and it's it's not a, you know, it's not one or the other. It's not black and white. It's a mixture. And that mm-hmm. is a very smart car that is making decisions independently and getting you to where you want to go. Or do you have a very smart uh, municipal uh, traffic control system which is directing that car? That has multiple sensors and is able to do redundancy. Um, the it seems like there's going to be a mix of those two technologies, and that. Uh, has a big effect on the industry. For instance, if the municipality is controlling it, instead of saying, when I want to leave, I can tell the system when I want to arrive, and it can do the calculations to make sure that I'm uh, arriving at least two to five minutes before my target date. That would have a huge effect in terms of time that is saved. It also, in terms of safety, it's actually safety. It's much safer have self-driving cars. It's also be much quicker. Uh, You can reduce uh, cars on existing roads by 40%, which means that you're going to spend less in terms of the cars will be lighter because they don't need the kind of safety features that we're talking about. They're going to be much more efficient, use less energy. Uh, There are a lot of benefits there, but there are also costs. The insurance company, you know, casualty uh, insurance won't necessarily be there. There will be savings in terms of the property damage and people uh, not losing lives or being off work because of they've been in an accident. So this is a, a real sea change. It's new. Uh, the calculation is going to be uh, difficult to estimate at this time. But going forward, we're going to see some real benefits.
1: Mm. And I know so some analysts even say the self-driving vehicles have become a new arena of the U.S.-China technology competition. So what do you think about that?
0: Well, yes. I mean, the current uh, chips bill that's going through Congress uh, has established that there will be subsidies for EVs. uh, But they've specified that there has to be a certain amount of, uh, first off, can't have anything Chinese in it, of course. uh, But then they want a certain amount of domestic uh, components in there. Uh, The existing supply chain doesn't support that. There is not one car company that complies with what uh, Congress is passing. So that means that if they want to get that particular piece of cheese, these rats are going to have to uh, reformulate what they do. And the, the question for business is, how much is the incentive? How reliable is this incentive? So that I will make uh, big, big bets economically in terms of producing, creating new factories and supply chains within the United States. Uh, I don't know that they're gonna be in a rush. It's kind of like oil, you're kind of concerned about, well, you know, When will these subsidies go away? Will people just say, no, no, we don't want that, less taxes, we're paying for this. These subsidies come from somewhere, right? So uh, it's not clear that uh, it's going to happen exactly way, the way the U.S. wants, but this is obviously another brick in this kind of tech wall that's being built between uh, the U.S. and not only China. This will affect the entire rest of the world, including possibly uh, Europe.
1: Mm -hmm. So then do you agree with Aina and how do you see the future of the uh, science and technology competition around the world?
2: Uh, I agree with Aina. Um, it's quite a frontier area uh, for technological competition, and the U.S. is trying to secure talents and uh, secure the top-notch technology by stalling China or cutting off its supply of some of the critical technology or chip Uh, two Chinese companies. Uh, And now it looks like there's not only uh, the economic uh, aspect, but also the national security aspect, especially when it comes to the military application of the technology. And it looks like for the manufacturing supply chain, whoever... Uh, can get ahead in this technology, can control not just the supply chains, but also be able to set the standards. And we know that setting the standards will determine who will ultimately be the top uh, in this area in the future.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, we're speaking with Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Jiao Yang in Beijing, thank you so much for listening.